Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Good morning. Yes, it's uh, Annie and... And Kim. Kim's back. How are you, Kim? Good. Yeah, nice to hear from you. Uh, the uh, we're uh, Today, this morning, we're uh, going to go back a couple of weeks and uh, go and revisit the wonderful memorial for a fabulous fellow, Trevor Grant. It was held at the uh, Trades Hall. It was the second one in the list because, of course, he was a marvellous fellow who had more than uh, one life because he died at 65 of the terrible asbestos disease, which he contracted as a cadet journalist. He was a, a famous locally sports uh, journalist for the Age and the Sun-Herald, but in his retirement he became a real rad <laughs> and uh, joined uh, the Socialist Alternative and also the ranks of 3CR broadcasters. He had a program here, What's the Score Sport? And the S's in um, score and sport were dollar signs. <laughs> <laughs> and Refugee Radio, he was the uh, person who created Refugee Radio, which is now continuing, so you know perfectly well he was an effective fellow. And uh, Tamil Manifesto. Uh, so we're going to uh, listen to some heartfelt tributes to uh, Trevor. Now, this will be of interest to people who uh, knew Trevor because he was a marvellous chap. But um, also, he it's a real testament to a man of action. And compelling. If you heard him speak, you couldn't help but feel that you should do something yeah. about what he was talking about. That's right. Quite amazing. So we're going to start the program off, kick the program off with that. And uh, we're going to then go and talk to Donald Sutherland, who is not the actor, no, much more important. The uh, uh, he In another life, he was the chief industrial officer for the AMWU. And he's now going to be, he is a statesman of uh, working persons politics. And uh, he's going to be talking to us about uh, low pay and vulnerable workers and the Modern Award Review, which is uh, happening. Good. It's good to hear that someone in the media cares. That's <laughs> right. And actually knows something. Mm. Yeah, right. And it's not just about effect and uh, 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 spectacle and uh, spread and circuses. It yes. actually has a real effect on real people. You know, we're not breatharians. We actually need bread on the table and uh, we need a roof over our heads. 
Well, you're very awake this morning with your Roman <laughs> general references. and <laughs> That's right. I got up early. I got up early and came here and started to read a book. That's what I did. Anyway, because um, that's what good uh, intellectuals do. <laughs> it wasn't that intellectual, I'll have to say. But... Um, but the book's good. Uh, we're going to follow that with This Is The Week That Was and uh, we're going to follow up that and end the show with Humphrey McQueen. Come me, why only democracy and human right and freedom only for rich people, government and for business people? Why that? Why Australia have a black history and why Australia hiding history? Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. That's right. Let's start off with our tribute to Trevor Graham. Oh, Trevor Grant. Yes, terrible. I have a friend whose name is Trevor Grant Graham, who's a filmmaker. Oh. And so, and he makes good film. But uh, every time I start to, it's a, it's a slip. It's a slip of the, um, the cogs in my brain when uh, I say Trevor and uh, Grant. But... Uh, the man is one of a kind, so it's it's actually quite rude of me. But let's start off with uh, Ben Hillier. You know Ben, don't you? Yes, he's a lovely bloke. Yeah, and he's the editor of Red Flag. And we were talking about Red Flag just before. Red Flag is the premier newspaper online uh, service that gives you up-to-date working person's news. And so you should have a listen to it and look at it. I'd like to uh, welcome you all to this celebration of a, a great comrade, great friend, great activist, great human being, as you all know, uh, Trevor Grant. Uh, we've got a number of people today who are lined up to say a few words and perform some poetry and song. Uh, my name's uh, Ben Hillier. I'm a, one of the editors of Red Flag Newspaper. I'm just going to do a bit of facilitating. Before we begin, I'd just like to say uh, a couple of words. Firstly, uh, firstly about the land. Uh, this is the land of the Kulin Nations. Uh, it was never ceded. It's stolen land and it will always be Aboriginal land. And I know that Trevor always paid his respects uh, to the Indigenous community here in Melbourne and was right behind them in their struggle for self-determination and equal rights. Uh, the second is on the venue. Uh, this is Trades Hall. It's, as many of you know, and many of you have walked through here, one of the first buildings of its, uh, of its kind, built by workers for the workers' movement, uh, people coming together in union to fight for a better world. We often hear that trite phrase, if, if walls could only speak. Well, if they could, we know what we'd hear from the walls in, in this old building. So many stories of struggle, of victory, of defeat, of faction fights, of boozing, of punch-ups of aspirations, hopes, dreams, sometimes won, sometimes lost, but a, a history of more than 150 years. And it's not just a, a relic to the past, this building, but when those people came together to build it at the top of the hill, looking down on the, the rest of the city in a, in a way to lift the workers up, they were staking claim to a future and the, the future promise of a world run according to that maxim from each according to their ability to each according to their need. And that's something that Trevor very much believed in. So it's very apt that we have our meeting here in, in these uh, hallowed halls, as they, as they say. And it's obviously very sad that Trevor wasn't around to see that particular future that he fought so doggedly for over the last 
several years and was taken from us far too soon by that ugly industrial disease, mesothelioma. Uh, it's also very apt that we're down here in the, the loading dock. Uh, I was, uh, well, a number of us were uh, at uh, the memorial uh, put on by Trevor's family last weekend down at the Woodlands Golf Club in Mordialic. It was a uh, very touching uh, memorial. Uh, I'd like to point out uh, Trevor's brother, Graham, over here. Graham's going to say a few words in a moment. It was very touching. It was, uh, the venue was delightful. It was very schmick. Looking out through the windows and from the uh, quarters, the vistas of greenery, of kept putting holes, manicured lawns, stretching fairways, bright blue sky above. It was truly wonderful. Our surrounds don't have quite that aspect to them today. I should say though we had, uh, we could have had this memorial anywhere and anywhere in this building any room was open to us. But it's fitting that we have it down here. You see the CFMEU logos emblazoned on the walls and on the bar. Uh, Trevor was a, a proud member of the CFMEU. He's one of those gems of a human being who goes against the cliche that as you get older you get more conservative. Trevor joined the CFMEU after he retired, uh, after being on a picket line uh, down there in the middle of the city, seeing the strength of the union, seeing the reaction of the Herald Sun to the picketers, seeing the lineup of hundreds and at one point more than a thousand police to smash that union, inspired Trevor to take out a membership and help, help support that struggle. Um, and it's also fitting because the CFMEU is one of the organisations that's done more than almost any other, and their predecessor, the BLF, uh, to helping, or at least to fighting, to wipe out this scourge of asbestos which litters this country that ultimately was the reason that Trevor lost his life so early. So here we are in Trades Hall with our vibe. We've got each other. I know Trevor would have given the thumbs up for, ha for having it down here. Uh, he would have been very happy to have so many people from so many different backgrounds of walks of life that regardless of the political differences and outlooks and backgrounds, knowing that there's some shared sensibility that everybody here, I believe, has with Trevor, and that is uh, a deep-seated desire to see a better, more just world. We've got a number of people, as I said, who are, who are going to speak. Uh, and the first that I'd like to invite up to the podium is Graeme, Trevor's brother, to say a few words. Graeme, yeah. Yes, indeed. That mm. was Ben Hillier in introducing the day that was held in memory of Trevor Grant down at... Uh, the Trades Hall, in uh, Victorian Trades Hall at the Loading Bay, the uh, impromptu bar that's been put together by the CFMEU MUA. Uh, and yes, indeed, uh, as he's pointed out, there were two memorials. And uh, we'll hear from uh, Trevor's uh, brother, who gives a idea of the history that builds a person like Trevor. You yeah. know, Yeah, it's very interesting. And then following him is... A little speech from a woman who is from the West Palpuan office, the uh, free free West Palpua uh, people, and you'll hear what Trevor Trevor's connection to that group of people, which is quite extraordinary. 
Well, th uh, thank you, Ben. Um, Aaron rang me uh, a couple of days ago and, and told me that this was on and I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to make it. Um, and then yesterday he asked me if I'd like to make or say a few words and I will, but you'll have to bear with me. I'm not quite as adept as, at this sort of thing as what my brother was. But um, what I thought I would do was uh, give you a bit of an idea of, what, of where Trevor came from and, and his, earlier, his earlier life uh, in particular. So, first of all, um, thanks for the opportunity to speak. Uh, it's, it's incredible to see the, the number of people that uh, Trevor touched in his life from all walks of life uh, and to see people here takes me back to our childhood and our, our very early days with our, our father and before that our grandfather. Um, last week at his wake I said a few words to a variety of people he'd touched throughout his life as a sports journalist. Very few of those people would ever have graced trade, Trades Hall. So today my focus is somewhat different. In my original talk I mentioned Trevor's strong social conscience, so maybe I can expand on where it all started in the 50s and 60s under the guidance of our father. We grew up in a family committed to sport and politics, left-wing politics. Our father and his father before him were members of the Communist Party. Even after our dad died, copies of the Vanguard continued to be posted to our mum, courtesy of the money he bequeathed to the pro-Chinese Marxist-Leninist party. The Guardian was, was subscribed to long before that. Dad would take us to the Yarra Bank to listen to the speakers on their soapboxes, so it was inevitable that in some way we would have left leanings. When cleaning out our parents' house, Trevor and I came across a, a, number, a number of what in the 50s would have been claimed to have been seditious books and papers in the back shed. It seemed our father was hiding them for some more prominent members of the Communist Party. They'd been hidden for something like 30 or 40 years. Our teenage years were during, during the 60s, so, and so was the Vietnam War. As you all know, this was also a time when the unions had some strength. Trevor was heavily in influenced by, by all this, strikes, demos and mor moratoriums. His side of our bedroom was full of posters and leaflets about union activity in the war. We were talking the day before he died about these days and of the teachers we could remember that, were not, that we were not so fond of. One of these was an English teacher who came from the army and took pride in the form of discipline more suited to the to it than the students of the school. Needless to say, he was very unpopular. The left-leaning VSTA was, was active at the time, but this particular teacher was not a supporter, to say the least. As third in charge of the school, he had his own office and separated from the other teachers. That made him a bit of a target for Trevor. During any threatened industrial action, which in those days meant strikes, in this case, Trevor could kill two birds with one stone, support the union and drive the teacher insane. He had a number of all the way with the VSTA leaflets printed and then posted them around the school, mostly in the vicinity of this isolated office. The teacher knew, knew who, it was, who, who it was, but could never pin it on Trevor. That must have driven him crazy. 
not that not that all significant in the scheme of things, but very much an indication of Trevor's early political views and actions. As well as the surreptitious work at school, he would attend demos in support of various causes. One in particular I remember was for Clary O'Shea, the tramways union boss jailed for refusing to disclose the union's financial records. Although we were from a left-wing family, golf played an important part in our young lives, which I guess is a bit, a bit of a contradiction. Um, we were junior members and we caddied, um, which had us, um, had us mixing with adults of the conservative class. I chose to work in this environment and always felt constrained in airing my views, but not Trevor. He went into journalism and was always prepared to stand up for his principles, even when there was the potential to ruin his burgeoning career. As I said, the Vietnam War was raging at the time and Trevor's opposition to it involved, mo <coughs> involved more than uh, attending moratoriums and demonstrations. He refused to register for the draft. In so doing, he was taking the odds to losing his job and going to jail. But as luck would have it, nothing ever came of it. The job he had was, was one he cherished, but he was a principled young man. In his years as sporting journalist, sorry, his years as a sporting journalist took him around the world, covering every conceivable sport about which he wrote eloquently and received many awards. He travelled to India and Pakistan with the Australian cricket teams and was appalled at the inequities he saw there. At his wake, one of his fellow writers told me a story uh, told me a story that involved racism that split the press, the press troupe covering that, uh, that tour of India. Again, Trevor was at the forefront of calling it out for what it was. And so he and his comrades stood apart from the others for the entire tour. It just so happened that they were the, by far the two best journos of the group, as, as well as having the most integrity. I guess it would be remiss of me if I didn't mention Trevor's love of sport and his ability to play, particularly cricket, footy and golf. We played from a very early age, our dad being a former seconds player for Collingwood. He gave us all, the, all we could ask in the form of encouragement and tuition, that is, when he wasn't trying to get a quid at the races. Trevor was a talented sportsman. He, believed, he played in many underage rep teams in footy and cricket and sub-district cricket later. He played golf as a youngster but gave it away for the team sports, loving that environment. He came back to golf in his late 20s when it became a lifelong obsession and he was determined to conquer it. Now, I don't know whether any of you have played golf but it's not the sort of sport you, you'll ever conquer. He didn't conquer it but he did get his handicap down to four which put him in amongst the really good players. This ability gave him the, the background and an intimate understanding of sports, of all the sports he was to write about most. So his writing stood out and was always well respected. As those from 3CR are well aware, Trevor did an alternative sports program, What's the Score Sport? He was to say, he was to <coughs> Sorry, he was to say the least. He, oh, sorry, he was to say the least disillusioned with the direction of sport and, and its corporatisation, which was fed by the mainstream media, particularly the Murdoch press. So he, he tried to give voice to the other side. Sadly, he had to forgo this to be able to deal with the mesothelioma. 
Last week there were a number of newspaper and, and online articles written about Trevor. One by a very close friend of his, John Anderson, who spoke volumes about his skill as a sports journalist and his, his integrity. But the two mainstream media articles I liked most were from Greg Baum and Martin Flanagan. Greg covered his work in sport and praised his work with refugees. Martin wrote in a way that captured the essence of Trevor. If I could, I'd like to read a little of it for those that never read it. That printing's a bit smaller, so I need these. Um, this is, these are Martin's words. We hear a lot about fake news these days. This is the story of a journalist who was the opposite of fake. His name was Trevor Grant. When I arrived at the age in 1985, he was a writer mostly concerned on cricket and football. He was a little bloke with a friendly but slightly reticent manner. As a sports writer, he was solid, considered, independently minded. He left the age in 1989 and went to News Limited. He had good mates there, but eventually left out of disillusionment with the Herald Sun's direction. It's what happened next that took him to a whole new level as a journalist. Without a job, he started driving a truck as a volunteer, distributing food and furniture to Tamil refugees. Being an affable character, he engaged them in conversation and kept hearing stories he'd never heard before. Stories about rape, torture, abduction and killings. Then he met a young Tamil man who had smuggled out photos of what went on during the final days of the country's civil war between the Tamils and the Rajapaksa government. The same government the Australian government has worked with to repatriate Tamil boat people more quickly. The result of this was, was his book, Sri Lanka's Secrets, How the Rajapaksa Regime Gets Away with Murder. Trevor died this week, aged 65. On hearing the news, I went back to read the story, to read and went back and read the article he wrote on mesothelioma for the ABC drum site. He told the whole story about how he was placed in proximity to asbestos in old newspaper offices. He's out of court settlement with their owners and he's coming to terms with death when part of him felt that he was the victim of injustice and he wanted to live more. Above all, above all else, he concluded, I want a happy death. Martin's words, why do I admire Trevor Grant? He didn't go looking for the Tamil story. It came to him, but when it did, he stepped up to the plate, accepted responsibility, and carried it all away. Excuse me. About a year ago, he sent Nathan Hollier an article on sport, which I gather he was having difficulty getting published. It was about Peter Norman, the Australian Olympic sprinter who stood on the podium at the 1968 Mexico, Mexico Olympics with black Americans, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, as they raised their fists in black power salutes. Norman wore a badge that identified his support for the black Americans. He was not picked for the 1972 Australian Olympic team. He was not even invited to the Olympic Games. When he was invited, it was by the American athletic team to whom he was a hero. In the article, Trevor recalled what John Carlos said at Peter Norman's funeral. Think about the greatness of a man who said, I won't stand before you, I won't stand behind you, I will stand with you. Then think about Peter Norman. Martin Flanagan then went on to say, then think about Trevor Grant. 
Last week I closed by asking the assembly to listen to Trevor's intro into Refugee Radio. We haven't got it here, but the inescapable logic of his simple, compassionate words pretty much sum up how he thought people should live together. Thank you. Thank you so much, Graham, and, and thanks so much for coming um, and speaking. Good afternoon, and especially to Trevor's family who are here today. Um, we were down, Jacob and I were down in Woodlands um, last week for the families and the journalists' uh, memorial. And uh, as I was standing here today, I was thinking, were there two men? <laughs> It's so different down there, and uh, but equally beautiful. And today, uh, you couldn't get a place more removed, perhaps, from the Woodlands Golf Club than the Trades Hall. But here we are. There's a few of us in common. Um, Trevor surprised the West Papuans, who, a bit like the Tamils, um, were completely marginalised in society and by the government. Um, and then he just appeared, courtesy of Joe Toscano and Joe's rent collective, several of uh, who are here today, who support the office in West Papua. And uh, it, it was a bit overwhelming, actually, when Trevor came and, and all of a sudden there was this money in the bank and we'd been struggling away, paying rent down there. And... Uh, <laughs> no one really quite knew what to say. <laughs> uh, so anyway, he he's came to a few of our open days and we got to know him. And then uh, just in December at our last Rent Collective open day, which doubled up as a Christmas party, um, he made another contribution. But by then the Papuans um, were ready and um, they were announcing the... Um, while he was there, very sick, and but still talking strongly, and so they announced the Trevor Grant Scholarship for West Papuans um, to to study outside their homeland, and uh, I, I think he was pleased, but who knows? <laughs> but Jacob did get his signature, um, and it was a bit. Jacob complained that it was a bit flat. It wasn't a big flourishing signature because he's naming as soon as it's independence um, oh I'm so sorry they're naming the um, airport in, Num in Numfor Island um, the federal government of West Papua is naming the airport in Numfor Island after him and Jake wanted a, a signature that could be engraved on the wall and complained to Trevor that it was a bit flat and so, so um Three weeks later, I said, well, I don't know, can we go down and get another signature? And um, rather than hear about this stupid signature every day, and uh, so I rang Trevor and he said, oh, mate, you know, just having uh, radiotherapy and can you wait a couple of weeks? And so it'll be the flat signature that goes on the wall on, on the airport in Numfra Island. But I um, just wanted people, and especially family, to know that because... Um, 
I did seem that um, there's a very different side of Trevor coming out he here today and compared to the way the journalists understood the man and even some of your family perhaps um, wouldn't have realised all these stories today, some of the extended family. So um, I'm pleased to be able to pass that on. My name is Selva Coolidgelvin and I am fighting for my life Thirty-seven months I've been held, I miss my child, I miss my wife Escape the clutches of the men with guns, Sri Lanka was my home Australia put me in a prison camp, now it's three years gone Here they treat me like a worthless human being Do they see me as a worthless human being? Well, they do not know Officials here, they question me They say they want me to return But how can I go back now When I've seen my people burn And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Kim and Annie. And that, of course, was uh, Liz Thomas' song for Selva, which was mm. part of uh, Trevor Grant's uh, way of working towards personalising the experiences of refugees in Australia. Um, but we listened to a very, very moving tribute to Trevor. Yeah, exactly. And on the line, we've got Donald Sutherland. How are you, Don? Um, very well, thanks, Annie. Hello, Kim, to you as well. Yes, good morning. Listeners. And we're going into the serious issues of what's happening to low-paid and vulnerable workers in Australia at the moment. Absolutely. I think it's really uh, uh, interesting that right now, all across Australia, there are not just struggles but debates and discussions about the plight of uh, of workers generally, but in particular of low-paid workers and uh, precarious workers, workers who are the most vulnerable uh, in the economy. And there's so many examples of it. There are industrial disputes happening in many states uh, which are highlighting uh, the unfairness in the fair work laws that uh, load power in favour of the employers. There is reported slave labour in Queensland just today, the Sydney or maybe yesterday, the Sydney Morning Herald was reporting that the Fair Work Ombudsman had launched raids on 80 separate businesses in that area uh, over the gross under underpayment of uh, students who were working to supplement their incomes, and uh, and it goes on. Of course, we've had the big picture debates about what's happening to the penalty rate cuts, the um, uh, the emergence of Sally McManus as the new National Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions and what she said in her uh, National Press Club and in other interviews. And sitting behind it all, um, relatively unknown, uh, is another Fair Work Commission decision about to be made in its four yearly review of awards about the possibility. Uh, of new rights for casual workers. 
What what so what's big, what's this? Yeah, what's this? Uh, what's this? The modern award. This is the modern award review, right? Uh, that's correct. Yes, and I think um, uh, it's worth just uh, dealing with that in the first instance because this is a very important uh, claim by the union. So, in this instance, the Fair Work Commission, in its four yearly uh, review of what are called modern awards. Um, is considering a claim from a number of unions supported by the ACTU for a new right for casual workers. The guts of it is, in brief, that whereas the current provisions in awards enable, in adverted commas, a casual worker who has been employed um, in a number of separate circumstances over a six-month period, to be able to elect, that's the phrase, the word that's used, to convert to permanent employment. Now, needless to say, that particular formulation has not been working. And so what the unions have done is seek a change to the award that would deem a casual worker, either in six months continuous or repeated incidences of work over a six-month period to be deem them to be permanent at that six-month point unless they choose to continue as a casual. Now, that's interesting. Mm, mm. That would be fabulous. Well, it's interesting because uh, if you... People think that being casual is a great thing because they'll get more money, right? And on the other hand, if you're a permanent you have uh, a whole range of uh, things about your quality of life uh, improves exponentially, doesn't it, really? Well, yes, I guess uh, the the worker who, or group of workers who are in the situation where there is casual employment or are casual workers themselves are the best ones to judge about uh, whether they wish to uh, be... Uh, to be able to be permanent workers or not. And that's that's essentially what this application to the Fair Work Commission by the union does. It shifts, not absolutely, but significantly, it shifts the control of the employment status from the employer uh, to significantly into the hands of the worker and in certain circumstances, their workmates. Do you think that's real? Because, you know, in this uh, recent judgment about uh, penalty rate cuts, one of the things about the uh, uh, public holidays is this business that, as it exists at the moment, where it says a employee can say, oh, I don't want to work on that public holiday. But as it stands, the power differential between the employer and the employee makes that laughable, if you ask me. Yes, well, that's what that that is actually the current situation with the current um, language in the awards. That uh, expecting uh, the idea that casual workers can elect to go permanent is exactly a failure for that reason. This this application, this change, proposed change, shifts the balance significantly, although not 
I don't think not absolutely, also for the reason that you're talking about. It does give more, potentially it does give more uh, say into the hands of the worker and other workers themselves about employment status. I agree with you because I think that it actually shifts the conversation from a lot of the time the boss would not even tell you that there was the option for you to go permanent. And it also means that you have to, they must have a conversation with their employees about this at least and ask, you know, they can of course put pressure on them to stay casual. But as it is, if your employer doesn't tell you, A, you have to find out that you're entitled to this and B, you have to go and if they're not giving it to you, ring your union official to come and do something about it. And there's a lot of pressure there in that. Could they identify you? Could you lose your job and so on? Yes, and uh, that that is exactly right. In fact, the language in the proposed change to the award uh, stipulates that four weeks before the six-month anniversary, the employer must inform the worker that at that point that they are entitled to be uh, automatically deemed as permanent. And in that in that final four weeks, the worker can then. Uh, either individually or in discussions with other workmates, make a decision as to whether they wish to... uh, They will be deemed to be uh, permanent, but whether they wish to uh, maintain uh, maintain as their own decision their status as a casual. But it is important that in the the language that the unions propose that the employer has a responsibility to advise the worker four weeks prior that their six-month anniversary is coming up. Now, the, it's very difficult to work out exactly where this is at inside the Fair Work Commission review. Uh, my advice is that the unions and the employers have completed their final submissions and evidence giving and so on, and that everyone is now waiting for the Fair Work Commission decision. The, the uh, other, other thing, The other thing that's going on at the moment, of course, is the national wage case, right? Well, the national wage case is due to start soon. What we're now seeing with the national wage case, which is a separate process to the award reviews, so the award reviews are a requirement on the Fair Work Commission uh, as a four, uh, as something that must happen every four years. Oh, uh, can I jump in? Can I can an uh, annual case? Yeah, can I can I just jump in here because you you've told me that you think that one of the problems with the whole system for young workers and others is that people don't don't understand what an award is. Well, I think that is widespread. That's certainly uh, been. Uh, the experience of many of my, and also that of many of my mates in the union movement, that when we discuss these issues with workers, uh, I was having a discussion in a cafe with a worker last week, and the discussion, as usual, turned to a very basic explanation of what an award was and what it meant for them in terms of their rights. And that's great to have those discussions and we need to be doing that a lot more systematically in an educative sort of way across the movement. Right. So now let's go to the national... Uh, so that, that's the cornerstone of the system, isn't it, the award rates? But now you're saying that the national wage case, which is all being talked... They're talking about raising the minimum rates of pay. Uh, that's the next thing that's uh, cab off the rank, isn't it? 
and that happens annually? Well, uh, in, in brief, the, uh, the awards set minimum rates, conditions and rights for workers who are covered by each of the awards, and there's about 120 of those. The national wage case is an annual case uh, that determines the minimum rate for wages uh, and uh, and how they that will be applied in uh, each of those 120-odd awards. And there'll be no wage increase if it wasn't for the fact that the ACTU and particular unions were not actually uh, making a claim in the Fair Work Commission. And this is a claim for all workers, not just for union members. And so it's the union movement that does that. And uh, we have heard earlier this week that the ACTU's intention is to lodge a claim for a $45 increase in the minimum uh, minimum wages. Um, I haven't had the opportunity yet to study the detail of their submissions, uh, but um, uh, certainly that's the headline uh, uh, headline discussion about uh, coming out of, or one of the main headline discussions coming out of Sally McManus's speech to the National Press Club earlier this, uh, this past week. So, what do you reckon her strategy is? You know, what what that speech uh, uh, gives an intimation of? Well, with with the minimum rates claim, um, broadly speaking, there are two big options for the unions in in, in terms of a strategy. They can make a claim. So the first option is they make a claim and then what predominates is the process of presenting uh, the claim and the evidence and then dealing with the counterclaims that will come from employers, employer organisations and the government to reduce, uh, to bring uh, the outcome back to a minimum. Uh, And that that will be predominantly a... A, a thing that is argued inside uh, commission hearings. The second option is how much industrial and public pressure is brought to bear uh, uh, to support a substantial increase in the, in in the in the region of the forty five dollar claim. And it's interesting, I think, that the union movement has not yet worked out since the Fair Work Act came in in uh, 2009 how to run effective industrial campaigns uh, in support of claims in the Fair Work Commission around wages and other matters also. I was... What's going to happen under Sally, uh, with Sally McManus's leadership, uh, which is... Um, it will be very interesting to see whether there is a shift in strategy whereby there is much, much stronger uh, industrial and public campaigning in support of the claim. Well, that was actually my question, uh, which you've already started to address, Don, which is what do you think is the significance uh, of Sally McManus's elevation to secretary, except aside from being the first female secretary, as, as I remember. Uh, do you think, I mean, she's talking tough, which is great. What do you think of her? Well, I, I, I have a lot of time for Sally McManus, and I think that uh, one of the reasons for that is that she harbours no, uh, there's been not the slightest sign in her whole career 
that she is interested in anything else but representing workers uh, through her role as a union representative. And uh, she's been, uh, she's worked in the real world of of, um, uh, of pizza pizza deliveries going back many years, and she knows what it's like to be in precarious work out of her own direct experience, and she has over the years participated effectively and at times led effective campaigns for uh, vulnerable workers who uh, have not previously been at the forefront of industrial struggles. So I think there is enormous potential in the synergy that will hopefully occur between her and Jed Carney, who comes out of uh, uh, public service as a nurse, and, of course, who's the president of the ACTU. And also, what is interesting at the moment is that it's not just Sally as a union leader who is pointing out the serious deficiencies in the Fair Work Act from the point of view of workers, but now other union leaders are becoming more publicly vocal. So the National Secretary of the National Union of Workers uh, earlier last week also... Uh, came out through a blog in the Chifley Centre's uh, website uh, condemning the Fair Work Acts uh, as a broken act from the point of view of workers. And there are others who are saying the same thing. This is really important that these statements are becoming public instead of being um, uh, agreed, if you like, behind closed doors. And people are now going to have the opportunity to become more informed about how the, the many ways in which the Fair Work Act uh, undermines and weakens the solidarity relationships between workers and workers' rights. And this false notion that's being per- perpetrated by the uh, Liberal National Party and their ilk that it is a fair and balanced umpire. Well, they go further. They say what they say is that the Fair Work Act has tilted the pendulum. That's the uh, metaphor they use. Tilted the pendulum too far in favour of workers. Oh, well, that unbelievable. Is, that, is a, that is a myth. That, um, that's unbelievable, the Don. Why the myth has worked is because the Fair Work Act architecture was created by a Labor government uh, and was signed off on by. Uh, uh, the ACTU and the major, and well, all the unions really, back in and around nine, uh, 2009. And because it was, that did happen in the wake, in the uh, aftermath of the big anti-work choices campaign, uh, people have been uh, conned, if you like, not quite the right word, but conned. Wrong-footed? Like, Wrong-footed uh, might be the word? understanding that it is a myth. It is a myth that the Fair Work Act has shifted the pendulum too far to workers. It hasn't done that. There are all sorts of penalties that can be invoked against workers and their unions for exercising power to achieve a better deal at work. They are still there. And that is what uh, now... uh, uh, There is now the potential for a much more serious and well-informed discussion about all of this right through the workers' movement and penetrating uh, into the broader public as well. 
these are all, I might say, widely accepted as being these laws, these anti-worker laws of the Fair Work Act, are now also widely accepted in academia as in breach of international labour standards that Australia is a signatory to. Oh, it's a watching brief, Don. It really is. Thanks for getting up in the morning and uh, briefing us thus far. Well, it's a pleasure to do so, and there's so much more that we haven't touched on as well. We'll have to do it in another week, Don. More strength to your arm. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Hi, I'm... No, I didn't do testing. Testing, testing. Okay. Hi, I'm Susanna Espy. And I'm Ida. And you're listening to 3C... A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when we're very, very restricted this morning. I'm not sure we can even go on, listener, which would be shattering for you, I know. But thanks to those anti-free speech, long-haired, commie, greenie, socialist, goody-goodies carrying on about the sensitivities of this community and that community, we have lost our right to free speech. We can't insult, offend or humiliate. So what's left to say? In working class families across no such thing as class struggle, true blue Aussie this morning, it's the only topic they're talking about. It's a tragedy. 18C wasn't changed. We have no free speech. Yes, yes, but but what about penalty rate cuts, wage stagnation, energy prices we can't afford? Oh, that's nothing if we haven't got the right to offend, insult and humiliate. Yes, Corey and George and Eric and the Lord Rupert of Wapping, usual suspect hacks are all correct. It's all people care about. But, oh, okay, we'll do our best to carry on. On the energy business, which it is, what leadership by the jobs and growth get things done caring business class government? As a report claims, the privatised energy companies are gouging us all, ripping us off. And as the government notices, maybe people are a bit upset about soaring energy prices. It takes urgent action. An inquiry into energy prices to report back by... by... Uh, uh, let's check that. Scuttle them, Josh, Malcolm. When will it report back? Uh, 20... Josh, have you got the details? 20... Uh, Ah, uh, yes, uh, 20, uh, uh, Malcolm, 20, um, yes, yes, I've got it here, uh, 20, uh, l- look, we'll get the exact date for you, but I want to assure True Blue Aussies our urgent action shows this government is taking this matter seriously and acting to assist True Blue Aussie businesses and households, True Blue Aussie families, unlike the socialists whose only solution is more costly blackout-creating renewable nonsense. And, hard as it is to believe, the great energy businesses are very upset. There's no need for an inquiry, they tell us. They are not gouging, not ripping off. The fault lies with government. Just when we thought getting government out of these things where government has no business to be had delivered us the benefits of competition policy, of private sector efficiency, and therefore the lower prices we were promised and are enjoying, showing it again how difficult it is for we lay common folk to comprehend the greatest little economic order of them all. Uh, Yes, why is government responsible and you innocent? Well, it was governments that privatised their power utilities. We, we can't be blamed for that. We can't be blamed for doing what business does. Uh, gouging, ripping off. Of course not. That is a despicable claim. No, doing the best by our shareholders. Uh, but as these are essential services, isn't your first obligation to the community? 
essential. The, the only essential is making a killing, a, a reasonable profit. And don't forget our shareholders are members of the community. And as a cyclone and extreme weather attacked True Blue Aussie communities, local MP up north George Christian Man and a Woman Family Son expressed empathy with his electorate but assured them the extreme weather we are experiencing increasingly has absolutely nothing to do with climate change because there is no such thing as climate change. Sure, scientists predicted this cyclone-prone coast could experience fewer but much, much more severe cyclones because of the climate change that isn't climate change, but, but what would they know? George knows. He's a member of Parliament. But as everyone talked about the disaster, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review expressed its sympathy with a P1 headline calling it a catastrophe. For the local people suffering incredible damage, I hear, well, no, it was a catastrophe for the insurance industry. But then what else would we expect? After the cyclone had swept through, Malcolm and little Billy headed up to show how much they cared. And I thought all the victims would breathe a sigh of and declare how much better they feel. And even better next day when Her Most Gracious Majesty's man in True Blue Aussie trained killer Peter Kaur's graves turned up. He could tell a few war stories and relate them to the disaster. He, he loves a bit of war, the old Pete. But the highlight was a shot for the telecameras, Malcolm and little Billy side by side pushing floodwaters out of some building with these big brooms while staring at the camera. And I thought, that's the most natural shot I've seen in years. On the very point of preventing these extremes, as we reported last week, former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses urged we keep the coal fires burning. Well, this week, another giant mind among that lot. No less a very important person as our very own Deputy Big Supremo and Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Big Supremo, Barnacle, offered his solution to the unsustainable, sustainable timber debate, the company threatening to take the chainsaws to itself unless the public purse pays it a few trillion and makes a few trillion more trees available to chainsaw. And obviously, Barnacle spent hours working on his brilliant solution open up lots of protected forests to the chainsaws and change the threatened species status of the Leadbeater's possum just declare it's not threatened. It's timber workers who will become extinct. He made a very strong and sensible contribution. Kill the forests, kill the possums. Well, what's just another extinction to join all the other post-1788 flora and fauna extinctions? And we can always change our fauna emblem to, say, the loud-mouthed, non-hairy, hayseed and sheepshit congenital idiot. And when that offend and insult and humiliate law is removed, we'll be able to say what we really think. Cyclone hit buildings and flora weren't the only things shaking this week. Caring employers in boardrooms across the country were shaking with terror at the prospect of poverty at this outlandish minimum wage claim by the bloody evil unions who just don't seem to care how their actions will destroy this country. And anyway, Malcolm and Minister for Caring Business Class Relations Macalia Kosh, the workers, assured us the lowest of low pay don't need an increase because they all live, they all belong to filthy rich families in mansions 
conditions in filthy rich suburbs, making this evil union claim even more irresponsible. And thankfully, a truly independent voice offered the solution to the boss's dilemma and to the problem, as they keep telling us, of slow wages growth. And we, in our naive way, well, won't include you, listener, I stupidly suggested the simple answer was just increase wages. Well, no. The answer to slow wages growth is slash wages, or more particularly, slash wages for the lowest of low paid, whom we now know are living in luxury anyway. And didn't Michaelia do a great job of explaining all that? Wouldn't we love to have her representing us in court? We mentioned recently Fair Work True Blue Aussie No Longer Work Choices Just Looks Like Advice Supremo Graham What's a Fair Wage Son Like Michaelia, a former Free Kill free kills the workers a parachick had resigned claiming the con mission was too biased toward workers and poor caring employers were being crucified leading caring employers to declare the con mission needed more independent con missioners like graham and the true blue aussie capitalist review dredged up one decision over many years a minor case in which graham had found for the workers a true example of independence and in every other case obviously the law was on the poor crucified caring employer's side well finally good news just this week graham has with his revered independence provided the solution to unemployment wages they're the problem slash wages problem solved sky high wages don't reflect the real world we live in he lectured us although we assume they reflect the real world graham lives in and abolish the no one can be worse off restrictions it is grossly unfair that caring employers can't register agreements that make workers worse off and now there's a kerfuffle developing over one of his final independent decisions, dismissing an evil union application for domestic violence leave to be included in awards. The con mission may review his decision, and poor Graham says this is just another example of beleaguered caring employers being crucified. Imagine what will happen to them in two weeks when it's Easter. Thankfully, as we fear how much further, further to the left the con mission may tilt at the sad loss of Graham, good news. In the real world, the government has made three new appointments to the con mission, all truly independent, caring business class appointments, including former Chamber of Profits Supremo Peter Anderson, who, before running the Chamber of Profits, was advising a former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Peter Root, the workers, when Peter, or the two Peters, rooted the workers. And another corporate workplace lawyer like Graham and the employment lawyer with the True Blue Aussie Farmers Federation. The very independent arbiters the pro-worker con mission needs to restore a bit of balance. In other words, workers' paradise is nigh. Finally, perhaps we can make paradise even more ecstatic by adopting this progressive policy from Belarus. Find the unemployed for being unemployed. That'd stop them to being a drain on the public purse. And there's no way caring employers would exploit them because caring employers don't do that sort of thing. Good morning. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. 
You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Kim and Annie. And on the line we've got Humphrey McQueen. Hello, Humphrey. Hello, Humphrey. Good morning. And this is Good News Week, as we've just been hearing. And I've got some more good news for us. I think we should begin by announcing that the capitalist economy has overcome all its problems. Never again will there be a GFC. No more 1930s-style depressions. And by the way, there's not going to be any more wars either. And best of all, I suppose, the neoclassical economists have a perfect understanding of how the system works. Well, I think that's enough for April Fool's Day, don't you? Yes. Well, so having, having got all the good news for April Fool's Day out of the way, there are a couple of other things we should always go back to. Our two big themes of weaving the 150th anniversary of Das Kapital in September into a discussion of the decade-long implosion in the expanded reproduction of social capital, which is the continuation of the big crisis that started almost 10 years, well, indeed 10 years ago. So that's where I thought we'd, we'd head ourselves this morning. But I have to make a confession again. I jumped the gun. I was paying attention to what the Bank for International Settlements and other people were saying about that long implosion. And they were saying that the day of reckoning had only been postponed and that what the governments and the corporations had been doing to postpone it had made everything worse. And at this time last year, I really couldn't see how we were going to get through 2016 without the system hitting the wall. Well, I was wrong. We got through. They got through. Um, The big problems haven't gone away. The Bank for International Settlements hasn't changed its mind about um, compounding the problems and making them worse and the day of reckoning still being in the future. But it was wrong to say it was going to happen by now clearly. And so it's important to not try to make a fool of other people when you made a fool of yourself. Um, And particularly, if you're interested in the concerns of working people, you've always got to be prepared to admit your own mistakes and to try and work out why you made them and where you could go forward. So that's where I wanted to begin this morning, um, by being able to say that. On the big question of where the system is, if you want one concerning big set of numbers, the Bank for International Settlements has pointed out that when the crisis hit in 2008, the ratio of all the debts, household, corporate, public account debts, all of them, compared to the gross domestic product of the world was 210%. So that at that stage, the amount that people had been able to borrow in one way or another was a bit over twice what they were producing every year. Well, now, 10 years on, nine years on, it's 260%. So the, the system has been floated by driving up the level of debt by 25%. So you can understand why the Bank for International Settlements is a bit concerned about how the day of reckoning had been postponed. Um, So that's the 
the, the big problems are still there for the capitalist system, as we're not surprised to discover. And Marxism is the way in which many of us try to make sense of, of where that system is. And I fear, though, that uh, a lot of people find that, even people on the left find uh, Marxism a bit too daunting for them to get into. And indeed, I have to say, I normally ignore this, but given that it's the 150th anniversary of Das Kapital, I really am amazed that the, the so-called Marxism Today conference, which is going to take place in a couple of weeks' time in Melbourne, makes no mention of the 150th anniversary. I just cannot put the Marxism Today as a title of a conference and the absence of the 150th anniversary of Das Kapital together. But that's what's happening on the program, if anybody wants to look it up and check. So that's the beginning of uh, where we want to start. Um, and I want to go back to the Bank for International Settlements again. Um, to uh, what they've been saying, because they've been struggling too to work out what's been happening. They, um, you know, I mean, the Bank for International Settlements are not nice people. We're not talking about, you know, sort of worker-friendly people. They are there as the central bank of all the central banks, and their main job these days really is to work out, uh, do research papers. They're the biggest sort of financial think tank uh, within the capitalist system. And they would have thought, they said, that if it was only a trade cycle problem, then they norm trade cycles normally run about seven or eight years. So you have a boom, then it goes down, then it picks up again. It's about seven or eight years. We're now past that mark, and there's still, they reckon, no real sign of, um, of having overcome the problems. So they've been looking for a different solution. And uh, the solution that the head of their financial research section has come up with. He calls it a financial cycle drag. Um, so that they've come up with the notion that there's a, not only a trade cycle, but what they now call a financial cycle. Now, when we think of how much the world has been financialized, the rise of financialism in since the 80s, trillions of dollars slashing around the world every day, it's really not surprising that um, people should start to pay more attention to the cycles that might be happening as people invest and reinvest and, and things are happening there. So, so, that's what, so that's what they've been doing. Now, the old trade cycle has given rise to an alternative explanation, uh, the one that's probably better known to people. It's called, uh, and people have been promoting it for the last few years, and it's called uh, secular stagnation. Um, but the reason the system hasn't picked up is that there's really a big cycle of stagnation. Um, and you can look at the causes of it in, from all kinds of ways. One of them is we do have excess capacity in the whole of the global system, which is the basic Marxist explanation. Um, other explanations uh, include um, the amount of growing inequality in the world so that people simply can't spend to drive the system again. There's a kind of Keynesianism lurking behind um, the secular stagnation view. Um, so th these are the uh, the two alternatives um, that, are, that are coming into the official views of why the system isn't behaving the way that they'd hoped it was going to and that on their previous accounts they really would have 
thought that uh, there would have been a, a, a bigger and wider and deeper recovery um, to this point than, than than there's actually been. See, the trade cycle doesn't appear until capitalism appears. So there's really no trade cycle before 1800. Um, so that as capitalism changes, new things um, are going to happen. And one of those new things, obviously, from the 18th century onwards, was the development of the trade cycle, which I said, you know, it goes about every, about, about every seven or eight years. Well, if you've got a new development within capitalism, like the financialization, then, of course, there are going to be other things that are going to be added to the system. Um, and that's where the financial cycle idea um, has been... I mean, I'm not suggesting in any sense that it's widely accepted because it's only just kind of come into the news, if it even even in the news. I mean, I, I track these things as anyone can do, and I, I recommend that they, you know, people keep a track on what the Bank for International Settlements is doing. You can just go online if you can and and, and track it through there, um, because things change pretty rapidly. In fact, I'm going to have to say towards the end. When I sent these notes off earlier in the week, I knew I was going to have to keep tracking one of the things because it was, an, as they say on the news, an unfolding story. Um, and there has been some major developments over the Greek debt, which is where I want to end up um, um, to, to talk around there. So that's the kind of starting place as to, as to where we are now with the... The, uh, some of the brightest and the best in the system trying to explain to us how the system has got to where it is uh, and why it hasn't got out of the of the kind of swamp of um, over-indebtedness, uh, excess capacity, um, I- income inequalities, all of these problems that have, that have been truly compounding the problem for us. So the... Financial cycle, um, what they expect of it is that, unlike the trade cycle, as I said, that runs for about seven or eight years, uh, they estimate that the financial cycle probably runs twice as long. Now, if that's true, let's do a little bit of arithmetic. If the trade cycle ran seven to eight years and the financial cycle, they estimate, is going to run for twice that length, that's about 15 years. So if the if the if the crisis is the starting point in 2008, and you add 15 years onto that, then it's not going to be over until 2023, which is another six years away. And it might even run a couple of years longer than that. So the cycle uh, that they're talking about won't turn around until. 2024, 2025. Now that is a, almost as you know we're only halfway through it in one sense. If you know if if that's the nature of this thing that they call the financial cycle, um, and what they're saying is that the financial cycle has a drag on the rest of the economy, that the big corporations aren't investing in new um, productive activity. They are able to make money, they believe, um, by shifting some of the some of their financial controls from one way, you know, from one place to another. You know, 
they continue this fun, you know, the, playing the game of, of financialization of trying to move around. The big danger for the system, and we talked about this in some length, is that if you go for 20, you know, um, if we've got another seven years of this, there is the electoral cycle. And we've seen in many parts of the world, in Australia even, in the United States and the UK with the Brexit vote, we've seen it right through the European electoral cycle that's coming up with the French and the Germans and the Dutch and the way the Italians have voted over the referendum to change the constitution. The political system is, from the point of view of capital, out of control. People are no longer locked into the series of political parties and predictable activities that they were there before. And a lot of that has been driven, of course, by what has happened in the last um, nine years of the, of, of the financial, of, well, the financial cycle, if that's how we see it, but certainly the implosion in the expansion of the whole of the capitalist system. So if there's another seven years of this uh, economic problem to go through, there's going to be a lot more political um, upheaval. That, um, you know, in a sense, you might say we've only seen the beginning of that. And one of the reasons why they haven't been game to fix the economic system is that they know the economic consequences and the costs of doing so would be so enormous in political terms that they've been truly hesitating. Um, you'd need to have a um, pretty strong open dictatorship like that um, where you can find people for being unemployed. You know, they're a long way from being game. They might like to do it, but they're going to be... They're a long way from, um, from having the political clout to be able to get away with doing something as uh, stringent as they need to do, which is to cut out all the excess capacity, to cut out a lot of the debt in the system and the costs of that, as um, some countries have seen, and we'll get round to the poor Greeks um, be, you know, before the session's over, and they we look at as some of the people who have been made to suffer the most for it. So that's what the Bank for International Settlements has been talking about. Um, it's, it's certainly an intriguing uh, account of why things have gone wrong, um, and um, it does bring us, uh, as people who try to examine this from a different starting point, of course, um, but the things we can learn from them, um, when, you know, you know that um, financialization didn't start for a hundred years after Karl Marx had died. So you have to ask yourself, if you do go and read Capital, what is there in what Marx has to tell us uh, that might help us to make sense of what's happening now, to help us make sense of what the um, uh, the um, well, the people who are paid to make the capitalist system operate as smoothly as it possibly can. It can't ever be very smooth because it is a system that grows through uh, throwing up uh, one piece of chaos after another and it conquers that and if it can do that then it will go on to the next stage. So we've got to be prepared to learn from them um, but we need to go back to Marx as well and say well is there anything in there that will help us try to make sense of this and you know and I think there are, you know, there are things there and one of them that Marx kept saying was 
You cannot make money out of moving money around. The only way, we know only too well, that you can add real wealth, real value, not the stock market value they go on about, you know, value-adding activities. They're just pumping up the prices. You only add value by exploiting working people, taking the value that working people add to the wealth of nature and expropriating that and accumulating it and using some of that accumulation to expand the entire productive system. That, in a you know, pretty short sentence, is how the capitalist system is supposed to operate. Um, but you can swindle and make money out of money for yourself individually, and you know, corporations can do it. They can swindle each other. They can swindle the public. They can move the money around, but they can't add to it. Uh, the total volume, Marx very sweetly said, the capitalist system cannot swindle itself. There's only a limited amount um, of wealth that is there that's been created by working people. And unless you add more, you aren't making any real uh, value, any adding any true wealth by, sh by simply shifting it from, from, from one bank account to another. Now, I mean, that should be pretty obvious, but of course... Many things that are obvious to us about the capitalist system are the very things that the capitalists themselves aren't going to face up to um, because it would be, you know, the animal spirits would be frightened off, as um, John Maynard Keynes said. Um, they're, a, they're, they're a very nervous lot, the capitalist investor, so they can't face up to a lot of the truth about, about their own system. For Marx, uh, the way to understand what is happening at any time, about any subject. His definition of what is science is you penetrate beneath the surfaces into the structured dynamics of whatever it is you're trying to examine. And that applies to natural science, it applies to social science, it applies to trying to understand the capitalist economy. Um, that we need to go beyond the headlines, God forbid, that you know, you'd think that that's the reality. Uh, we'll get around to a bit of that with the Greek debt again now, uh, before we close in a few minutes' time. But it is worth noting, to go back to the paper produced by the Bank for International Settlements, something else that, that he's saying as he opens the paper. He says, and I quote, I'm going to make some quotes now. He says, the economics profession has been grappling with uncertainty. Gone are the illusory certainties of the greatly um, successful capitalist system of the 90s and into the early part of the 21st century. Instead, he says, the establishment, I himself and things, face deeper, sometimes troubling questions about how the economy really works. Orthodox economists, he continues, he says, are working against a backdrop of paradigm uncertainty. Well, I think that's certainly true, but I'd like to make a small bet. We'd say Paris to a peanut, that none of that is in the university courses that uh, people go to when they enrol for Economics 1. I doubt that very many people are going to be told in the next couple of weeks what the Bank for International Settlement says about the state of economic theory that it's in crisis, 
that's not what undergraduates are told. But um, it's our job to spread those kinds of, of uh, bits of information around. That that's what somebody as you know significant within their own system thinks that there is paradigm uncertainty. To put it, it's a very polite way of putting it that they really don't know what the hell is happening in in in, in their own capitalist system. Now, of course, being a Marxist is no magic. Um, solution to being able to understand everything. You'd call yourself a Marxist, that doesn't mean to say you automatically understand things. We've still got to work hard. We've still got to investigate all the details. Uh, we have to pay attention because the basic rules of how capitalism work may stay true and we can be certain about those, about exploitation, about expansion. They're the two basic things. But how they happen changes. Um, in each time, each place, uh, there's a different way in which it'll work it out. If it's happened this way once, then it's very unlikely to happen that way on on the second time around. So we've always got to be alert to what we could call asking the question, exactly how does it happen on this particular occasion? And that leads us into the case of what is happening to the Greeks. Now, if you relied on the surface, the superficial information that um, the um, you know, it's called headline news, the Greek crisis was over two years ago, wasn't it? It's disappeared from the headlines, but it's about to come back if it hasn't come back in the last couple of days already. Um, because what the Greek crisis, the solution, as it was called, is that there were to be a series of big loans made to the Greek government so the Greek government could pay back the non-Greek financial institutions that had got involved with all these dodgy activities that put the Greek economy into such a crisis situation. And in July this year, another six million, whoops, six billion euro. Uh, was due to pass through the hands of the Greek government. The Greeks don't see any of it. It doesn't help the Greek people one little bit. The money is given to them and they have to give it straight back again. Um, and this is supposed to happen in July. Well, there are negotiations going on and they are not going very well at all. In fact, I sent this off, as I said, uh, early in the week and I knew that yesterday I would have to have another look to see how the negotiations were going. And you'd have to say things have got worse. The German finance ministers pretty well told the Greeks to bugger off, um, that you know that they're not going to behave themselves, they're not going to do the job, then they better get out of, um, of at least out of the Eurozone, if not out of the European Union altogether. So this may be electoral talk. I mean, this may be them, you know, talking to the German electorate uh, rather than actually talking to the Greek government. But if what's intriguing, of course, is the money doesn't flow to Athens and it doesn't flow back again, then the Deutsche Bank, the, one of the biggest banks in the world, is in serious trouble um, because they're one of the biggest and most exposed of the financial institutions. So when the German finance minister says, well, we're not going to give you the money, is really saying, well, the German government's going to have to bail out the Deutsche Bank. We're not going to bail out... Um, we're not going to do it in an indirect way. We'll have to do it uh, straight up ourselves. 
and for the Greeks to get the money, and this is the crunch point, what they have to do, what they've agreed to do, is to get their current surplus up to 3.5% of their gross domestic product by next year. At the moment, it's 5% um, in their in their current spending surplus, of course, is what I'm talking about. How, um, and the only way they can do that is to cut the pension and to tax the poorest people who do have jobs because 25% of the population don't have a job. Mm. So, so we're, we're coming to the end here. I know, so the, I know. Uh, Tom, I, you'll be pleased to hear. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> okay. that means that the IMF uh, fears that the austerity will tip the Greek economy back into recession. Well, Is that it? Yeah, well, that was what the IMF, this is the intriguing thing. The IMF was saying that at the beginning of the week. By the end of the week, the IMF had come on board with the, with the, um, with, with the demands from the European Central Bank. Um, they had switched. Now, whether that is because the new Trump administration is very much in favour of, of... I mean, the IMF is an instrument of the United States. That's not any doubt about that. Oh, we can't so go any further there. from... Uh, we we, really, anyway, we really anyway, have to finish. We have to finish there, but I hope you've got some idea of where we're up to and we'll see whether I've made any more mistakes in uh, in, a, in, in prediction. Four time. Okay, so I'm going to say feminist and you're going to say power. Ready? Feminist! Power! Feminist! Power! Feminist! Power! You're on 3CR and uh, it's the end of Solidarity Breakfast. Goodbye, Kim. Yes, see you um, next week. Yeah, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We we did a tribute to Trevor Grant. We talked to Donald Sutherland. We we went to This Is The Week That Was and we finished off with uh, Humphrey McQueen. We're going to go out with a a thing that I found, 10,000 Reasons to Rebel. It's Chinese punk. Gorgeous. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.